good to um, <clears throat> come and meet with you again. <clears throat> um, I have sinus problems all my life, and so sometimes my throat gets a little bit uh, blocked. <clears throat> so excuse me. Um, we we had we last yesterday we we we, we looked at a th we've been falling through a theme of prayer and revival. And yesterday, we looked at the theme of what is revival, uh, focusing on uh, the fact that revival comes again and again at God's initiative. Uh, we also looked yesterday at what happens when revival comes. We noticed that the spirits are poor, poor upon the church. Repentance and holy living follows. We see transformation in individual life and society, and we find the church sent out in mission. The question is, what is God saying to us today? And what's the challenge that He's putting before us in terms of whether we should be seeking revival or not? You know, friends, we, as I mentioned yesterday, that we cannot command revival. We cannot tell God you must bring revival. Um, but we can humbly seek Him. We can ask, humbly ask, Lord, we, we, we want you to come. And we, and we can prepare our hearts to wait to worship Him, uh, and to wait for Him to come. Um, and we look at, remember yesterday, we look at especially the passage from John the Baptist, where he first, he tells, he announces, Matthew chapter 3, he announces that the King is coming. That's actually what is man, uh, the kingdom is near. It means the King is near, the King is coming. The King is coming, therefore you must repent, you must come to confess your sins, you must be baptized and washed clean. And when that happens, He will come and pour His Holy Spirit and sweep over you with fire. And that's what He means by He'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. But He goes on. Those of you who have followed that passage, He says that, but the shashaf, in other words, that which is useless, that which is wasteful, that which do not repent, that you'll be burned. In other words, for the, when come, God comes, when there's no judgment, sorry, when there's no repentance, then judgment comes. Now, that was how I introduced the theme yesterday. Before I go on this evening, I would like just to pray, and then I would like to just show you a few pictures, all right? Um, let's just pray together. We come in your presence, Lord. Sometimes under pressures from all sides, we are not able to focus, but we ask that you come here and minister to us so that we can just wait on you. So, Lord, we ask for your presence to come into our midst through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. We ask that our hearts may be cleansed before you. We ask that we will be determined to live a holy and pure life before you, that you will have freedom in our midst. And, Lord, tonight as we focus especially on the theme of prayer in relationship to revival, we ask, Lord, 
you speak to us, you will move in our hearts so that there's a deep longing to draw near to you in prayer. So speak to us now. First, in the pictures we will see, second, in the words of the scriptures, and third, through your servant. Open our hearts to what you're doing. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can switch on the PowerPoint, that will be most helpful. Thank you. Now, I, I don't know how many of you will remember this. This was in New, Stra New Straits Times, December 2nd, 1985. Now, some of you were not born yet, I know. But quite a number of you are old enough. And you might have remembered those pictures. I was very shocked when I first saw it. It was a New Straits Times article in 1985 about what was happening up in Bakalalan in Sarawak. You got that? All right. Now, when I first saw this, I say, oh, yeah, this one, uh, these charismatics are always get carried away. You don't take them seriously. They exaggerate things and blow up things. And then over the years, I realized that there was actually very little exaggeration. Things were happening up in Sarawak, Sarawak sightings. Oh, by the way, if you go to New Straits Times, you look for it. I sent one of my office staff when I was in the bishop's office to look for it, and they could not find the news. They, they finally got the star office, the archives, that they would look for it, they cannot find. So finally, they could find it after they look at the index looking for UFO. Um, I'll explain why you have UFO in a moment, but uh, unidentified flying objects. But this is what happened. And uh, when I first saw it, as I said, I thought it was just exaggerations. And over the years, I heard about this story more and more, and about how the church grew between about 1970 to about the year 2000, the church in Sarawak grew from about 20% to about over 40%, a very rapid growth of church church. A revival, a measure of real revival by any measure. Okay. You know, hundreds of thousands were added to the church over that period, literally. Okay. Now, if you look carefully, you actually will see a picture. Uh, can you see this picture? Now, you don't see very clearly. I'm going to show you the real, real nice one. Next one, please. Uh, sorry, I can control it. Now, this, this is the real colored one, okay? Uh, somehow we managed to get it, but if you look back at it, it was actually the same one that was shown in newspapers. Can you see that? All right. This was... a. Uh, time-lapse photograph taken by James Ritchie, whom I've actually met uh, in Kuching, and he, he took me with uh, time-lapse photography. And what happened was that all they saw at that time was a ball, this ball, flying through the sky. Okay. They did not see what's at the back. But what happened was because it was a time-lapse photograph, the ball traced a pattern in the sky. Do you get a pattern? Do you get, do you get a picture now? All right. 
They trace a pattern in the sky, and you look carefully, it almost traces out the image of an angelic figure. And you find that if you look closely, at the back, there's another four. Actually, in the original picture, there was five. Okay. Now, that was what actually happened and came out in newspapers. So I want to show you the newspaper cutting so that you know that I'm not telling you a cock and bull story. That it was actually done by reporters going up to Bakalalan, finding out a story about what happened when a powerful work of God came upon that rural area called Bakalalan. Okay. Now, I finally went up to Bakalalan uh, in 19, uh, sorry, 2011, and then I went up there again in 2013 in Maumurut at a prayer meeting. And um, while I was at a prayer meeting, um, this is about 7,000, this is a building about 7,000, 7,000 feet above sea level. Uh, you've got to be pretty fit to climb up there, but um, most of, many of you can make it. I'm sure your pastor can make it. Uh, one lady tried to go and she literally had to be carried up, by the way. I better warn you first, it's not a straightforward. Um, so that was that photograph. So I, to, I was just taking photographs at night, uh, 2013. Now this was, what, 28 years after a big revival. But they still had a prayer meeting every second year. And I just decided to take a few photographs to show my wife that um, I was, didn't go, just go off on a holiday. I actually went for a prayer meeting. <laughs> you know, sometimes wives get very suspicious of what husbands are up to, right? <laughs> so I just took a photograph, and this is the hall. And then the next photograph, when I took the next photograph, I got a shock. Because, uh, by the way, you can actually see the, the date, uh, 2013, can you see it? Right? And that's, uh, I think, July 20th, July 20th 743. Got it? Okay, then when I took the next photograph, I got a shock. I thought that something happened. My camera lens had cracked. So, I thought the camera lens had cracked. And then I began to take other photographs. Now, you look at the time. Just now it was 7.43. Now it's 7.44. I took a series of photographs, but the next one is the clearest. Seven fifty-one. I saw nothing with my naked eyes. I asked everybody I could ask that night and late next day. I said, "Did you see anything in the hall that night?" Everybody said, "No." All right, but it came up in the photograph. I had gone up that day for that prayer meeting because I said to the Lord, I needed a confirmation from you about something, which I is a little too personal to share. And somehow, God chose to speak in a place where there has been wonderful revivals in the past. But that's not all. I want you to let you know that God is doing things in Sarawak that we don't realize. I'm going to skip them. This one is just a quick one. This is Gamburuba's side, the same year in Kuching. 
And that was um, the Iban people were having a 5,000 people gathered for prayer and for ministry up in Sarawak. And the next thing was, at the end of the service, one of the local pastors came up to me. He said, Bishop, can I show you this photograph? He had seen the earlier photograph that I had taken, and he says that, well, I don't know how to explain it. And I say to him, I also cannot explain it. But I can just tell you that something's happening. Now, I'm going to show you one more set of photographs than you. How many of you know Pastor Lam Ki Heng? Uh, some of you know, right? Are you aware of uh, the work that he's doing among the Pinan people up in the interior of Sarawak? Do you see the photographs he sent out two years ago? He was giving gifts. He, was, he had gone right in the interior of Sarawak to teach the Pinan people about the gospel. At the end of it, they came and gave him gifts as a, in appreciation. And while gifts were being given to him, one of the Pinan people had a camera, smartphone, and took some photographs. After taking the photographs, at the end of the service, they came up to him with tears in his eye. He said, Pastor Lam, I want to show you this. I just, I had a few, few other photographs, but I'll just show you one more. Okay, I thought I'd just show you this just to let you know. Um, if you want to take that uh, PowerPoint, you're welcome to have it, okay? But um, I've got no, there's no copyright here. Uh, you better ask the Holy Spirit. It's nothing to do with me, okay? Um, we can turn it off now. And can we have a bit more light? Here I can't see. Just up. Thank you very much. Friends, we've been talking about revival. And I've been saying that when revival, revivals are things, are, happens when the Holy God pours His Holy Spirit upon His church in great power. I'm showing you this photograph not to make it sensational, but I just want to let you know that these things are not just something that the Bible talks about, but these things are happening right where we are right in our own time, that God is working in ways. And tomorrow, I'll also mention some other things as well. When we begin to recognize that God longs to pour His Holy Spirit upon the church, we realize that too oftentimes we are living at what I call a sub-Christian level. In other words, what is normal is not what we see every day. What is normal is what the Bible tells us of what God longs to do for His church. What is normal is what John the Baptist says. When He comes, He'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. But too often times, we are so used to the normal, the normal world around us, we forget the real normal that the Bible talks about. And I want to remind us in a very gentle way that too often times 
will live at a sub-level, sub-Christian level of the Christian life. I say tonight we're going to focus on prayer and in relationship to revival. The quick question is, what is prayer? Let me begin by saying what prayer is not. And I know one of the questions that I used to ask is, how does prayer work? Huh? You know when you want the light, you switch on the light, right? You switch it. Now, is, does prayer work like that? Huh? Can I just switch on the button and the word light comes? Is it when I have a problem, I switch on the button and everything gets aside? Prayer is not like that. It's not something that you can switch on. Prayer is not a mathematical formula either. E equals mc squared. You put in the knowns and you get the you solve the you solve the mathematical equation. That's not prayer either. It is not a mathematical mechanical issue. It's not what I call you scratch my back, I scratch yours. What you call a quid pro quo. Some forms of pagan non-Christian prayers are like that. I still remember my friend Robert Hunt, some of you may know him, he used to work in, uh, as a missionary, American missionary, working at SDM for some years, he went to, before he went to Singapore, he's back teaching in the um, United States. He said, when he first came in the 1980s, he, went to, he, he wanted to learn about local culture, so he visited the Chinese temple at Old Klang Road in Kuala Lumpur. And when he, was, he went there, he said, you know, he said, I went there and I saw this lady standing in front of this statue of this Guan Yin statue, very angry, scold, scolding her, shaking her hands at him. So I asked the temple warden what's happening. She said, oh, a few weeks ago, a, few time, a little while ago, he, she came to pray and gave all the offerings, but her, pray, his, her prayers were not answered. So now he's going to come back to scold this, 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 this idol. You see, in some forms of pagan prayer, we think in terms of quid pro quo. In other words, you give the gods plenty, the gods will give you back plenty in return. In Old Testament, the prophets scolded the Jews when they thought God was like that. They said, if you give God plenty of sacrifices, uh, God will give us a great harvest, God will bless us. The prophet says, I don't want God, is not interested in your heart. In, in, in your sacrifices. God is not interested in all these things. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. What he wants is holy lives, righteousness. So prayer is not any of these mechanical things. It's not a mathematical formula. It's not a, you scratch my back and I scratch your thing. Prayer is ultimately based on something very simple. It's about your relationship and my relationship with our Father in heaven. Even with that relationship, we know how to pray. You don't need to teach a little baby how to talk to mama. Do you need to tell? You don't need to. Because it's something that's very automatic. Because you say, Mama, I want milk. Pa, can I have ice cream? They know how to ask automatically. Prayer is something that's rooted in our relationship with our Father in heaven. And as we enter more deeply into that relationship, our prayer life deepens and grows. That's the best way I can explain prayer because I cannot explain it any other way. But let's look at what happens. The passage was read to us from the Exodus chapter 34. It's a passage that some of you may be familiar with. 
The context, those of you who know that passage, was Moses had first gone up to the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments from God. He had received the Ten Commandments, but while he was up there, the Jews, the Israelites below the mountain, decided to play, to worship the idols. And in those days, in Canaanite worship, when you go into pagan worship, it's not... Oh, can you switch off the light, please? Glare my... No, some... Yeah. No, no, no spotlights, please. Yeah, thank you. Um, it glares my eyes, I'm afraid. Um, when, when, when you go into Canaanite worship, you don't just worship. It means drunkenness and sexual orgies that goes with it. So that was a context. And God wanted to destroy the Israelites who had become so quickly, so quickly forgotten about God and His holiness after He had delivered them from slavery from Egypt. And it was only at Moses' pleading that God relented and did not bring judgment. And now we come to Exodus chapter 34. Moses had, in his anger, thrown the Ten Commandments, the two tablets, against the golden calf. Now he goes up to the mountain a second time to receive the Ten Commandments. And so what he says, he, said, he says, the Lord says to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first and I'll write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. And so Moses goes up the mountain. And what does it say? <clears throat> In verse 10, he says, So Moses was there with the Lord 40 days, 40 nights. 40 days, 40 nights, he was with the Lord. He received the Ten Commandments. Then he comes down. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai, verse 29, <clears throat> With the two tablets of testimonies in his hand, he came down from a mountain. Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Now, I want to suggest to you that this is one of the most important things we can learn about this episode. Moses has spent 40 days, 40 nights in God's presence. What happens? The glory of the Lord now was reflected in Moses' face. If you grasp it, you understand what prayer is all about. Because when you enter into God's presence, you reflect His presence. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him, because God's presence that shines forth an awesomeness, God's holy awesomeness. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. And afterwards, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken to him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking, he put a veil over his face. And he talks about the fact that whenever Moses speaks to the people, he had to cover his face up because the glorious, the glory of the Lord, which was on his face, would not be so frightening 
it's so awesome, press fight, awesome is the proper word, so that people will not be frightened of it. Now, what does it tell us about prayer? It is that when we go into God's presence, we begin to enter in God's presence, and the presence of God stays with us. And when the presence of God stays with us, it begins to be seen by other people. And in this case, it was seen as the awesome glory of God. And this is what happens to all of us when we pray. It is not just in the case of Moses. Think of the story of Jesus. Jesus came as an incarnate human being, a fully human person. So he had to live the life of a fully human person, like you and I. And in what we read yesterday, we talk about the fact that John the Baptist announced his coming. And then when we go on to Luke's gospel, John the Baptist announces Jesus' coming, and Jesus comes. And then he meets with John the Baptist, who was waiting for him to show himself. And we arrive for baptism at the River Jordan. John the Baptist did not want to baptize him, as those of you who know the story. But John, Jesus said, no, 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 we have to do it. You have to go ahead and baptize me, because that's the way I have to identify with sinful humanity. So John the Baptist goes ahead and baptizes Jesus. And as Jesus, God the Baptist baptizes Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes upon Jesus in power. And so in Luke's Gospel, chapter 4, verse 1, it says, And Jesus, full of the Spirit, returned from Jordan. He had gone for baptism, the Holy Spirit had come upon him, and the Bible talks about, and Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returns from the river Jordan. But where does he go? He goes straight into the desert and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days. So from baptism, he was led by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes upon the human Jesus at baptism. The Spirit leads him to the wilderness, and there he spends 40 days in prayer and fasting, confronting Satan. Then we read again, after 40 days of prayer and fasting, he weak has, gets victory over Satan. But beyond that, we read in verse 14, chapter 4 of Luke's Gospel. Luke's Gospel, chapter 4, verse 14. And Jesus returned in the power of the Holy Spirit to Galilee. Verse 1, Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes upon him. He goes into the desert, spends 40 days in prayer, and 40 nights in prayer and fasting. He gets victory over Satan. And the Bible goes on to say, and he returns to River Job, to Galilee, in the power of the Spirit. He spends time with his father in prayer. And the power of God comes upon him in even greater measure. And then we read at the end of the chapter, he says, And they were amazed when people saw Jesus. They were amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands unclean spirits, and they come out. And the reports about him went out in every place in the surrounding region. Empower his spirit. He heals. He casts out demons. He brings you to the great and mighty works of God. Moses goes up to the mountain. He spends time with God. 
he reflects the glory of God. It's that is seen in his face. The glory of God just comes. In other words, when we enter God's presence, we actually bring God's presence back into this world. Has anything happened to Jesus? Although filled with the Holy Spirit, he enters in God's presence in the wilderness. 40 days, 40 nights. And he, there, he gets a great anointing to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes upon him. He returns and brings the Spirit and the power of God back into the world. And mighty works, his signs and wonders follow. You know, friends, when we worship and pray, the same thing happens. I don't know how many of you have ever been at a meeting where you're worshipping God wonderfully. And everybody sends the presence of God. And suddenly, somewhere at the back of the hall, you get a scream. Have you ever sent to heaven? What happens? You actually read that in Jesus, in the Gospels. Jesus will go to a synagogue, Jesus will go to the marketplace, and some demoniac will say, why do you come and disturb me? I know who you are. You get away. You read this in the Gospels, right? And that's exactly what happens. You see, when we are worshipping God, God's pre- and praying, God's presence comes in power into our presence, into our midst. And there are de- demons hiding in some people's lives because they are either oppressed or demonized in some form. And when the Holy Spirit and the presence of God comes in power, the demons cannot hide. And fearful of God, they start screaming and cause a lot of disturbance. I still remember we had a wonderful church camp with one of the Kuala Lumpur churches. And it was the last night and we were having a worship service. And they were worshipping wonderfully and suddenly there was this woman screams and next thing was that she had fallen down and they had to be and literally, her husband and a couple of others had to help her to come to the front. And when she arrived at the front, she just could not stand up. She was on the floor. We took her out of that room. And away from everybody, we were going to minister to her. And I remember the day before she had told me this in our conversation. She said, you know, we were married for many years. We never had any children. So I would go from temple to temple and temple asking the gods for children. Finally, I went to Wesley Methodist Church, Kuala Lumpur, to pray, and God answered my prayer. And she had two lovely kids. And then immediately, I remember that. I said, did you make any vows and promises to the spirits when you went from temple to temple to temple? She said, yes. And immediately, when she confessed it, she was completely set free. She had been in bondage for years without realizing it in, because of her non-Christian practices. And she would say to me, some month, weeks later, she said, Hua Yong, he says, I've always wanted to pray, but I always find it very difficult to pray. Now I can pray. Now this example, Moses goes on a mountain. He brings the presence of God into the camp of the Israelites. Jesus goes to the wilderness and spends 40 days, 40 nights with God. And the power of the Holy Spirit comes upon him in great measure. Signs and wonders follow. We worship the Lord and the presence of God comes and women like the one that I've just mentioned are set free from demonic bondage. 
That's what prayer is all about. We go to meet with God. We go into presence. His presence through us enters into the world. We're going to touch lives. We're going to change the circumstances around us. One of the most powerful experiences, uh, stories I know about this was a story that comes from South Africa, and some of you may have heard me tell this. For many years, as you know, South Africa was ruled by white supremacist government. The blacks, although the whites consisted of, make up only of 15% of South Africa, the blacks were totally second and third class citizens. But by night, the early 90s, the white supremacist government realized that they cannot continue to function the way they did. And so finally they agreed to have a free election. April 27, 1994, was a date set as helped by the international community, that was a date set for a free election. But as the date approached, there was one thing that must happen. The three major parties must agree to a, for, for a, a proper formula for the election to take place. Without that agreement, there would be no election. For months and for weeks, for months, they wrangle, no agreement. And finally, in order to try to solve the problem, the world community brought in two of the world's best negotiators in the world to try to help them. They brought Henry Kissinger, who was the Secretary of, used to be a Secretary of State, the Foreign Minister of the United States. They brought Lord Carrington, the Foreign Secretary from United Kingdom, the two of the most well-respected, two of the leading international statesmen, negotiators. The two of them came in, and they were going to spend two days negotiating. As part of the process, the South African Christian leaders brought in an African-Kenyan Christian professor from Kenya, Professor Okumu, to come in to be part of, to help in that negotiation. They spent two days negotiating. The negotiations completely collapsed. Professor Ukumu called the Christian leaders in South Africa the night it collapsed. They realized, he says, the negotiations collapsed we think that South Africa is going to be in real trouble because already bombs are exploding all over South Africa. 50 to 100 people are being killed every week. If the negotiations could not go on, could, could, there was no breakthrough in negotiations, the whole of South Africa would collapse into a terrible civil war with hundreds of thousands, if not a few million, being killed. So the stakes were high. But that night, when the, elect when the negotiations collapsed, Ukumu called up the Christian friends. They say, negotiations have collapsed. Kissinger is flying out. Lord Carrington is flying out. And I'm also leaving because they don't want to be caught in a civil war that's just going to explode in, explode in, in, in South Africa. The Christian leaders say to Professor Ukumu, he said, you cannot leave. We need you. 
You go ahead and see what you can do. We will get the whole of South Africa, the church, to pray for you. And to mobilize the whole of the South African church to really pray into this. And a few days later, Professor Okumu met the representatives of the three major parties at the VIP room of a stadium in Durban. And at that VIP room meeting, he showed them a formula. He says, can your party agree to it? And each of the, rep sorry, the representatives of each of the three parties look at the formula and say, I think my party will agree to it. And even as they talk about an agreement, right above them, 25,000 Christians have been praying for the last, last 10 hours at a Jesus Peace Rally, as well as hundreds of thousands of Christians throughout South Africa. They pray true. And the next few days, I don't have time to tell the story, a few miraculous things happened, and there was a major breakthrough. The World Press announced, literally, Time Magazine, Economist, BBC, they said, a miracle, they actually used the word, a miracle has taken place. But I don't think they ever attributed the miracle to prayer. I'm giving, telling you this story to illustrate that how prayer, through prayer, God's presence can enter a situation. The powers of darkness are driven out. And peace comes, and God's righteousness comes. You know, there's another side to the same story I've told you. How many of you will remember reading about the Rwanda massacre? Can I, you, can I see your hands? Right? Quite a number of you. 800,000 people were killed in a country called Rwanda, which is 2,000 kilometers north of South Africa. And it was a civil war in a country, Christian, between Christians and Christians, because the country was over 90% Christians. And Christians were killing Christians from different tribes. And the civil war took place exactly the same time as the breakthrough in South Africa. The breakthrough in South Africa was April. The civil war in Rwanda was from April to July. So I asked one of the Christian leaders, I said, how come you guys in South Africa could deal with the problem, but how come the Rwandan Christians fail to deal with the problems? And he said, and it's very important for us to recognize this. He said, we actually went to Rwanda a few months before. We saw the problems there. We won the church. You got to get the church to put the act together and pray for a breakthrough. Otherwise, disaster will come. The church refused to listen. And that was what happened in Rwanda. Christians were killing Christians. Catholic priests, Christian, Protestant pastors, nuns, all were involved in the killing. Friends, I've shared this simple story about the power of prayer. Prayer is not something that we say, please give my son good results in SPM. 
Please make sure that my daughter has got a good husband. You know, sometimes our prayers at that level. But that's a very sub-Christian level of prayer. God is asking us to live at a higher level. At a level in which the real, normal Christian life is to be lived at. That the kingdom of God will come through the power of the Holy Spirit, pour upon the church. And the church empowered Holy Spirit. Praise. People are brought to Christ. Breakthroughs take place. Societies are transformed. Mission goes forth. This is what's happening. God is calling us to live at that level. So I'm saying to you, friends, we must not be satisfied with the subnormal Christian life that we are living. God is calling us to connect with Him, connect with Him at a deeper and deeper level so that we will learn to enter into God's presence through prayer. And through our prayer, God's presence will enter into the world to bring about change, to bring about righteousness, to bring about the advance of His kingdom. But we cannot just pray. Prayer is not just a mechanical thing. Prayer is something that we need to take seriously. But in order to take it seriously, side by side with it, we, our lives must be clean. Think about our own Methodist revival, the Methodist church. Wesley was born in a pastor's home, had a very strict Christian upbringing, studied theology in Oxford. Father was a pastor, studied theology in Oxford, even taught theology at Oxford, even became a missionary. And yet he realized there was something missing. And so we find that he was Searching for God, searching for God, searching for God. For example, when he was 23 years old, he writes, he says, I met Bishop Taylor's book, huh? Rules and Exercise of Holy Living and Dying. In reading several parts of the book, I was exceedingly affected because it talks about a purity of intention. In our hearts, our hearts must be pure in its intentions, and therefore, we must learn to strive to live accordingly. So he was very concerned. He started a holy club in Oxford. In the holy club in Oxford, they would meet to pray, to read the Bible, to go for church services. They go and visit the sick, to care for the needy, to visit the prisoners. They obey God's instructions. They want to spend time God, worshiping God. They avoid all evil. They did all good they can. And he writes to his father. He said, well, my one aim in life is to secure personal holiness. And yet, he still could not get a breakthrough. So he thought to get a breakthrough, he'd go as a missionary, become a missionary in North, Af North America. He goes to America as a missionary for two years, and he makes a mess of it. He, falls in, he, he was, gets interested in a girl, but he couldn't make up his mind whether to marry her or not. And the girl decides to marry somebody else because she couldn't wait for him. And next Sunday, because of that, he won't give her communion. Wow, pastor. Ah, pastor like that. <laughs> and he realized he, made a, he really goofed it. He made a mess. He had to run for his life because they weren't going to arrest him and make him pay, pay a fine. 
He comes back, he says, I went to America to convert the Indians, but oh, who shall convert me? He searched for God. Spend time in prayer. Live holy life. And finally, one night, 13 years after his intense search began, he steps in the street, a meeting in London, and he says, I felt my heart strangely warm. That night, God came in his life. It is not that, as some people say, he was not converted before. I think he was converted thoroughly. It's just that he had no assurance of his salvation. And that night, as the Holy Spirit came upon him, he found assurance. But that wasn't the beginning of the revival. That was only the final step. The revival began. That outer scale experience was made. By the end of the year, New Year's Eve, 70 of them, his brother, George Wickfield, the three leaders, together with almost 70 others, they were praying and they were praying and praying from at night until 3 a.m. in the morning. And then John Wesley writes in his diary, about 3 in the morning, as we were continuing in prayer, the power of God came mightily upon us in so much that many cried out for exceeding joy and many fell to the ground. And that was the real beginning of the Methodist revival. The power of God came upon people. Just like Acts of the Apostles, you receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. And that's how the Methodist revival grew and how the 18th century evangelical revival transformed England, transformed America, and so forth. It's not just in Wesley. We find the same thing in stories like <clears throat> John Sung. I told you yesterday about John Sung coming to preach in Penang, 1935, 1936, 1938. <clears throat> Hundreds of people were converted. Many were healed. Lord just blessed the churches. And many people, old people, there are still a few around who received Remember John Sung. Those of you who were not here last night, I mentioned Mrs. Ku Hock Siang, who passed away a few years back. She was one of those who saw John Sung for himself. But one of the stories about John Sung that you need to know is this. And again, it talks about this point to the power of, the power of prayer. John Sung had a very short ministry, only about 12, about 13 years. And then, stricken with the illness, he died very early. He died in 1944. But towards the end of his ministry, because his great concern was for the revival of the church in China, he prayed and prayed and prayed. Towards the end of his ministry, the Lord gave him a clear conviction. And he shared with other people. He said, God has told me that a great revival is coming to China. A great revival is coming to China. But he says, first, but before that can happen, all the missionaries must leave. Now remember, the Chinese church, the Western missionaries had brought in thousands of missionaries. They brought in the best schools. They brought in the best universities. They brought in the best orphanages. They brought in the best hospitals. And yet the church was hardly growing.
And John Sung said there were two problems. The Western missionaries wanted to control all the resources they brought. The Chinese pastors were always looking to the Western missionaries for the gaji. In other words, both were looking to the Western resources for, the, for God to bless, for, for the church to grow. And he says, God's church doesn't grow because of money, because of resources. God's growth is when the Holy Spirit works. So that God gave me a clear conviction. He's going to bring a deep, big revival to China. But first, the missionaries must leave. Nobody would have believed John Sung when he said that in about 1939, 1940. China was at war. There were still missionaries there. The church was struggling and weak. He died in 1944. By 1949, the communists came. By 1952, every missionary had to leave China. And the whole church in the outside world thought that the China church had died because missionaries, sorry, pastors were thrown in jail by the hundreds, leaders were thrown in the jail, all the church property were confiscated, and many pastors died in prison. And then we read about one of the greatest revival taking place 20 years later, beginning up in the 1970s. And as Johnson has said, the missionaries must leave. This is not going to be a work of man. This revival is going to be a work of God. And God alone. And that revival is a work of God built on the prayers of God's people. At the end of his life, Johnson spent the last few years of his life doing nothing but pray, even as, as he lay for about three years, dying because of his illness, but praying for over those years. As we pray, the presence of God enters. You know, just now I show you the story of Bakalalan. So I promised to tell you the story yesterday. 73, the revival took place in Barrio. They came to start the Bakalalan a few days later, and the revival broke out in Bakalalan. People start falling down, and I mentioned they're just hit by the Holy Spirit. Two ladies, one was down there for 24 hours, another was down there for fully 72 hours. The one who was down, was down there for fully 72 hours is still alive by the name of Ibu Maria, and I'll talk to her, tell you about, a little bit about her in a moment. But what happened after the initial revival, the wonderful thing was this, there was a church leader, he wasn't a pastor, he was a previously a pastor, but now he was a sort of lay church elder. He took the initiative to lead a group of people over the next 10 years. Can I em emphasize? Over the next 10 years. Praying, going from house to house, telling people they must learn to listen to God, take the Bible seriously, listen to the work of the Holy Spirit. If there are quarrels, they must learn to be united. And one of the things they did was, you know the uh, indigenous people, many of them go to see Bomos, Everything from the bombers has got to be thrown out. They did that for 10 years. <laughs> and after 10 years, God says, I'm now going to manifest my glory. And the picture that I show you there, with a the ball of light flying through the sky, was one of the examples of the manifestation 
of the glory of God. That was in 1985. I think some of us want to see all these signs and wonders like this, but we forget that the people in Bakalalan prayed and lived holy life earnestly for 10 long years. I went up there and they told me, Pa'agong, he says, he will go to the mountains and spend overnight there. He'll be praying overnight. And teams of people will go up with him to pray. And that's how it went on for 10 years. And the glory of the Lord came. And the revival swept across Sarawak and blessed much of Sabah and West Malaysia as well. Now some of you will say, we are not dead. We are not great Christians. We are very ordinary people. How can God use this? So I'm going to tell you the story of Ibu Maria. Ibu Maria has now emerged as one of the great leaders, quietly. She was a homemaker. Very simple woman. I can tell you how simple she is. One day she was praying a few years ago, and the Lord said to her, Go and pray for Rosma. So she said, She asked people, Who's Rosma? Now that's how simple she is. She doesn't know what's happening in the world. You got Nizara? Very simple woman. But she knows how to pray. And she knows how to listen to God. She was the one who fell down three full days on the floor in 1973. And she saw how God transformed her whole life. And I'll give you an example of the power of ministry. How many of you know Randy Sinki, the one who runs Wawasan Penabo? Can I see your hands? Oh, wow, now you're wonderful. Randy Sinki is a Kadazan Dusun from Sabah. Okay? He runs the whole Pinting Malay uh, press and Alkitab Kanakana and all that was produced by him. About 20 years ago, he was given, promised a scholarship by the government to go to Edinburgh to do an MA. But the letter has not come. And you know in those days, letter, promises were made verbally, but until you get a letter, tak jadi, ah. So he did not know whether he should go or don't go. It was getting very near the beginning of term. So out of that very great stress, he went to this prayer meeting at this Assemblies of God Church in Kuala Lumpur. And lo and behold, he heard that there was this one prayer group from Bakalalan preaching. So he went there. At the end of that service, one lady prayed for him. And this lady don't know him from Bakalalan. Prayed not in English, not in Malay. Prayed in tongues. And prayed in tongues in Chinese. A language she doesn't know a single word. This is Ibu Maria. But he, although he's a Kadazan Dusu, had gone to a Chinese primary school when he was young. He understood everything that Ibu Maria said to him. Ibu Maria did not know a single thing of what she said, but he understood completely. And God told him, as a result of that word of prophecy in Chinese, speaking in tongues, he went in obedience to Edinburgh. He arrived in Edinburgh, it was confirmed there was no scholarship. And somehow, God opened the door for him. With the understanding of the departmental head, he actually worked himself in England overnight, uh, he uh, worked to save out enough money to see himself through his MA program. 
had he not received the word of prophecy in tongues, he would not have been able to go. Now, you don't need to be a John Sung. You don't need to be a great Christian. Ibu Maria was a simple homemaker. When the Lord touched her, God says, you've got to spend every night from 9 o'clock onwards, you go to the back of the house and pray. She said, I'll go there. And I didn't want to go there because the demons were troubling me most of the time. But over the years, she began to become a real prayer warrior. A simple woman who doesn't even know who Rosma is. Exercising a powerful ministry. And that can happen to every one of us. Every one of you. Remember what John Zong said about the China revival? The missionaries brought in thousands of missionaries. They brought in the best schools, best universities, best church, best hospitals, best orphanages, and the church was not growing. But when the people begin to pray and trust the God, as John Sung, you can read this in his diary, by the way, which is published in English. He says, it will be a work of the Holy Spirit, a work of God, not a work of man. Friends, I've shared these things to challenge us. Don't continue to live. Let's not continue to live at a low level, sub-normal level, sub level of Christianity. God is calling us to live at the level He wants us to live. He wants to pour His Holy Spirit in power upon the Malaysian church to clean us up. But you know the big problem? We are too middle class. We've got everything. We are too comfortable. We don't need God. That's why you find the work of revival that's happening happens in the interiors of Sarawak jungles because they have nothing. Just like that revival in a Chinese church happened when God took away everything. And they are nothing but to depend on the Holy Spirit. Friends, we need to come to God with the same humility. We might have wonderful buildings. As I said, this, all the property here is worth easily over 20 million. That's a very rough estimate. But this is going to come for nothing in terms of God's work. Until you and I learn to humble ourselves and say, God, without you, we cannot do anything. God will not be able to step in. This is where our prayer life must begin. And that as we begin to pray and spend time with God in the attitude of repentance and humility, we enter in God's presence. And the presence of God will then enter into our church and into Penang through our lives. And then things will begin to happen. And people will come to this church because they know that God is here. And that if they have a need, they can find God here. We're going to time have ministry in a moment, and pastor's going to lead it. I want to say to you all, my friends, let me re-emphasize this. You don't need to be a John Sung. You don't need to be a Billy Graham. 
You don't need to be a great Christian. You don't need a PhD in theology. Most PhD in theology don't know how to pray, by the way. <laughs> Let me tell you the fact. I, I know because I've lived among them. You don't need all these things. You can be like Ibu Maria, a simple woman who doesn't even know who Rosma is and yet can be used powerfully by God. As you have a time ministry tonight, you want to give your life to God. You say, God, I'm tired of living in a subnormal Christian life. I want something more. I want, I've read enough in the Bible, and I want to live at that level. Then you come. And I know pastor has also said that those of you with special needs, you, can also, you also are welcome to come. You only decide to be filled with the Holy Spirit in a far fresh, fresh way. Come, we ask you. And those of you who want to say, Lord, you've been speaking to me about certain things in my life. Tonight, I want to get sorted out. Come, let God sort it out. Come, let's pray before I close, as I close. Lord, I thank you that you are here. I thank you that you are teaching all of us to know how to pray. And I pray that you will help us to know how to pray much, much more, to enter into your presence, so that through us, your presence will enter into this church and this world of Penang more and more. Lord, you know that we need you. On our own, we cannot do it. We need you to humble us. We need you to teach us what is right and how to live holy lives. We need you to come that inspire us, your Holy Spirit, we pour upon this church to transform us. Lord, will you please do it? And tonight there are those who are in need of you. Will you please minister to them in power to show that they will be able to live, they will, not, they will be able to leave this place knowing they're in touch by you. They've seen something of your glory. Now hear this prayer. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Dear friends, it is our deep desire to pray for everyone, for anyone and everyone, which means to say even if we have to stay here until past midnight, we will do it. But if you feel you can't take it and you need to go home, it's okay. Right? We, we invite you to leave quietly. The two things that's going to happen now, one is uh, we are going to declare in faith uh, words of scripture that promise to us when people come in confession and they come seeking prayer, we anoint them with oil for healing, marking them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And in faith and in trust, we leave all things into God's hands. Whether it's healed or not healed, it is all in God's hands, but we do this in faith. Now, I, I've been in your shoes before, and I know sometimes we say to ourselves, should I go, should I not go, should I go, should I not go? If you are asking that clear question, then go. But if you are very clear and say, I don't want to go, I don't think I want to go, I'm not ready, it's okay. There will be another time. 
But I would ask you, uh, if God is here and present, and He is, why not? So friends, let me read you these words. They come from us, uh, to us from a liturgy of healing. And I'll read this for you to think through. Are any among you sick? They should call for the elders of the church and have them pray over them, anointing them with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise them up. And anyone who has committed sins will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. Let me invite you to take a few moments to just close your eyes to confess your sins to one another. And if there's a need for you to be reconciled to one person, anyone in the church, you need to do this. I invite you to do this now. the same way that Bishop Hua Yung has asked you to worship the Lord. Worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. Just declare how much you love Him, how much you need Him, how much you need His forgiveness. Friends, will you stand 
in one voice, if this is the desire of your heart, will you respond accordingly? We shall worship the Lord with a new song and lift our hearts to Him. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all God's benefits. The Lord redeems our lives from the pit and crowns us with steadfast love and mercy. Let's just lift our voices and worship the Lord and just declare out to Him and release your pain, your emptiness and your desire to have God in you. 